James, Soundness of Soul from the Inside Out. This is part five, and the title this morning is Turning New Birth into New Life. Turning New Birth into New Life. I get that distinction from the wording of the text. We read most of it together. And let me just read it again quickly. It's, it's only four verses. James 1, we finished 17, so we'll pick it up at verse 18. Of his own will, he... And then look at this phrase. He brought us forth. So you get this birth type phrase. Brought us forth. And he did it by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, every person, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then when he talks about anger, it's like he can't drop that one. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and this word, rampant wickedness. And then he says, receive with meekness, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And, and word there relates back to word there, you see. So, so there was this initial um, birthing brought forth through the word. That's a past tense event. But there's, there's more that God wants to do in my life. And so I'm to receive, as a Christian, with meekness. It's the same word which is able to save your souls. So we were, we were brought forth by the word of truth, and now we're to ongoingly receive that same word, which is able to save your souls. Let's pray. Let our hearts just... Let our hearts just... Uh, rush to your word, to your presence. Let us come with hearts prepared and hungry, not for gold that perishes, but for the same word of truth that birthed us, the gospel. Whether someone quoted scripture to us or not, it was that, the, the gospel of the New Testament that gave us birth. And that same word of truth ongoingly keeps keeps saving our souls as we receive it in a proper way. And so here we are with your word open. Let it continue its saving work in my heart, in our hearts. I ask it in your name. Amen. The theme of the book up to this point has been the testings, the trials, the difficulties, whatever term you want to use, that come into the Christian's life, and there are always a variety of responses, some helpful, some that mature and bring completeness and steadfastness, and some that don't. The point of today's text 
is there is no time when the power of God's word is more needed than in the hour of trial. That's why after he finishes talking about the testing, the trying of our faith, and the different responses to it, he, he's anxious to get into the subject of the word. These trials, James is saying, they, they show what's lacking in my faith. That's what trials do. All trials. Trials are great revealers. They, they point out specifically where uh, the renewing, healing, correcting power of God's word is needed in my heart. They point out specifically what's lacking. That's the word James used earlier. But there's, there's a catch-22. Trials are also the one time where I'm inclined to act just reactively or impulsively or rashly without patience. Trials don't automatically bring out the best in us. Sometimes they bring out the worst in us. So these situations where God's Word could come with great correcting growth potential into my life, it's also the same kind of a time where some of the worst elements of my character naturally bubble up to the surface of my life. That's what James is going to be writing about in our text today, 18 through 21. Turning new birth of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Turning new birth into new life. Receive with meekness the implanted word. To Christians, receive with meekness the implanted word. Turning new birth into new life. Getting the most help when the need is greatest. When trials bog us down. The word can lift us, James says. This is a passage about giving your spiritual life a forward thrust when trials come and would pull in an opposite direction. It's about about not just living on some past conversion experience. That's not enough for a Christian. But having the joy of ongoing and increasing maturity and development. It's about how, verse 4, how to let steadfastness have its full effect. That's what he's talking about now. How does that work? Point number one. The word that gave you new birth is the word that gives you ongoing life. I get that out of verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Even before we get into the various ideas packed into this verse, notice God's plan that we should be a kind of first fruits. Of his creatures. So we see God has this incredible plan. He has this incredible plan to show the world. We should be a kind of first fruits. God's plan to show the world his greatness right now by the transformed character of you. So God, God 
saved you, brought you forth by the word of his truth so that, so that he could display a different kind of creature in this world. He could display in this world a first fruits of the life of God in the human soul. There could be a demonstration. He doesn't plan to just tell the world of his preserving power. He actually plans to show the world his preserving power. He doesn't plan to just tell the world that he is life's greatest treasure. He actually plans to show the world that he is supremely desirable, more to be desired than gold. He wants a demonstration of that. And he wants to show those things through you, and he wants to show them through me. Now, the place where God's greatness and glory and desirability, the place where those things can be most noticeably demonstrated, is in your trial. I hate to break that news to you. Because life at least appears to work pretty well for Christian and atheist alike when times are happy and prosperous, no need is pounding at the door, no one is hurting for meaning and the life of God in the soul, no one's hunting for it, but people do start to hunt for deeper realities when the bottom falls out of life. And they will notice at that point... How do Christians secure their lives? Notice that 18th verse. It's strange, isn't it? It doesn't really begin with a description of God's plans for the future. James starts by talking about something in our past. The verse begins with this story of our conversion. How how we were brought forth. By the word of truth. The verse begins with our past experience of God's grace. God's grace in my conversion. James starts with a verse about the past before he starts talking about the present, the present trial, and before he starts talking about God's future work of grace. Before that, he starts talking about my conversion. And it, and it makes me say, why? James, why, why go back? Why are you starting there? And there's an important truth he's about to unfold, and it starts with my conversion. If, if you're not saved, James has no other starting place to offer. You, you can't just pull your life up by its bootstraps. This isn't just some, you know, Dr. Phil kind of fix your life up some good advice. James is talking about new birth. Brought us forth. He's talking about new birth, a divine 
God encounter through Christ. It comes only through faith in Christ, as he's revealed in the word of truth. James' focus is that very defined, historic, truth-specific, revealed gospel that comes in the records that we have in the New Testament. But new birth, while it's crucial, it's really not the center of James' thinking in that 18th verse as he moves on from it. It's a launching point into something else very important. And what he wants to say to me, to you, is the word that gave you new birth, the gospel. The word that gave you new birth is the word that gives you ongoing life. That's what he's saying. That's why he starts with that brought forth image. The word that births life is the same word that sustains life. This is so important. He's saying to someone like me, I am just as dependent on the daily reception of God's word now as I was for gospel truth to penetrate my heart and give me salvation. How desperately did you need salvation when you were lost? How important was it to you? Well, maybe you didn't think about it much in your distant past somewhere, but at some point in time, it became crucial to you that the word came and brought forth new life, the gospel. You were desperate for it. You came to some point where you said, I, I can't live ongoingly without this. I'm doomed without this. I'm lost without this. And James is saying, I can no more continue to walk with Jesus without receiving his word regularly than I could be saved apart from the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He's trying to show this is essential. I don't think most Christians really believe that. Commitment to to the studied, prayerfully interpreted and applied truth of God's word, a commitment to that is not legalism. It is, it is life-giving. It is life-producing. That's what James is saying. Devotion, your devotion and intake of the word of God today is as necessary for your ongoing walk with Jesus as it was for your conversion. How saved could you be without the gospel? Well, you couldn't. How can you live the Christian life without the ongoing intake of God's word? Well, you can't. Do you see what James is saying? How important is it that my life gets 
revived and renewed and interpreted by God's Word every day, Pastor Don? How much does it matter? And James has an answer to that question. How important was God's grace for your conversion? There. That's how important God's Word is in your life every day. The reason James starts with this truth is he's going to be talking about how we receive the Word on a, on a continuous, regular, daily basis in the next few verses. That's going to be his topic. And he wants to clear up a big misconception that Christians might have about living in the Word of God perpetually. Because, you see, we all understand we've been saved by grace. We know it was only God's mercy extended to us in a glorious, true gospel of Jesus that gave us new birth. But it's, it's hard for me, it's hard for you to sustain a proper emphasis on the ongoing necessity of hearing the Word day by day, long after our conversion. Somehow, in a, in a, in a twisted way of thinking, we're not convinced it matters too much I'm saved by grace, not by works. Therefore, it can't matter too much if there are slices of my life where I've, I've not yet committed to living biblically. And that's, that's, that's the issue James is addressing here. How important is it that those slices of your life come under the rule and input and life-giving power of God's Word? Well, it's about as important as how important was your salvation, grace, the gospel, when you got saved. It's that important, James says. This is a huge problem. It, it is misunderstood grace. Any view of walking in gospel grace that makes me less diligent about hearing and obeying and applying the word, the word of his grace, as it's called, is, is grace all mixed up. And people with a mixed up view of grace never like the book of James because while James does believe in salvation by grace through faith, he always wants to make sure my experience of grace is living Authentic and dynamically current. So James refuses this option of leaving a confused church thinking we have been saved through the word of his grace and now that we are in the kingdom we will select the areas of our lives and the time when we will yield other portions of our lives to the Spirit and the Word to correct and to cleanse and to renew. And if I don't get around to it for quite a while, well, we're already saved by grace. We're in. It's very common. It's very common. Point number two. The first step of preparing your heart to receive God's word begins before you start reading your Bible. James 1.19 Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And I said in that second point that 
I take these words to be preparation for the teaching James is going to be giving about receiving God's word in 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. And James says there are three specific instructions requiring really diligent, hands-on attention for the life of the word to be quickening in my heart. He has three things. Three things you need to know every time you pick up your Bible. Did you do it this morning? Will you do it this afternoon or when? At some point, you'll pick up your devotional book, your Bible. It'll have some scripture, and you'll read it. And James says, there's three things you have to do before you open that book. First, let every person be quick to hear. He's not talking about speed reading. And he doesn't mean we should be quick to hear anything at all. He's saying we should be particularly quick, in a hurry, to hear what God would have to say to our lives. He's he's talking about the kind of anticipation we bring to the Word of God. That chewing at the bit to have our thinking corrected, changed by the Spirit of truth. So, so before I open my Bible, I, I lay down all self-justification. Before I open my Bible, I close my mind to the, even the possibility of arguing with God when he speaks to me through his word. I won't do it. It's the attitude of the psalmist when he said God's word was to be more desired than fine gold. How, how quick to hear. How hungry are you when you come to dine at God's table? How prepared are you as the word comes? Through your own reading, through preachers, teachers, friends at a Bible study. James seems to be saying we can come to church and still be slow to hear. I can be like that. Oh, how we should pray for a a freeness of heart. A desire to be shaped by the word of truth. That's what James means. Have running feet to come and be exposed to the word of God. Find ways to show your children that this is the number one desire of your life. Run to church. Don't walk. So first... We see that we need to hear God's word quickly. Shun apathy. That's what he's saying. Stir up your heart toward the word. Read it enough to develop an appetite. Get the feel of divine truth. Get worked up about knowing God's word. He has two more instructions, directions for assembling a word-dominated life. But they're different from the first. The first deals with this this anxiousness. This pushing aside of apathy. This this quickness to get to the source of spiritual power. Run to the word. The second two points deal with preparing the heart when the word is actually read or listened to. And James says there are two particular barriers that block the flow of power and grace when we hear God's word. And Pastor James wants to offer us all two warnings this morning. 
And so after saying swift to hear, he says, B, let every person be slow to, slow to speak. So first, swift to hear, one. Slow to speak, that's two. It's not some vow of silence. James doesn't mean people shouldn't talk or communicate. But there is, apparently, a kind of, a kind of expressiveness that James says is harmful in the presence of God's Word. And it can manifest itself sometimes when no words are actually spoken out loud. Don't, Don, don't be quick to frame objections to what God is saying to you in His Word. Don't bring a heart that, even though you've rushed to hear and to read the Word, maybe in a church service, a Bible study, or devotions, however you've come in contact with the Word, don't bring a heart that makes uh, any kind of conditions. Never approach the Word considering it an option for your life. I said in my class, you can't come to God's Word like you talk to an interior decorator. Here's some fabrics. This one, you like this? Let's, let's do this. No? Well, we can do this. Want stripes? Here, there's stripes. Beige? No? You want to go white? We can do white. That's, that's listening, but it's a, it's a conditional kind of listening. God is not an interior decorator. Never set yourself as the judge over what God's Word says. Remember, James is writing to Christians. And he actually has to remind them, James has to remind Christians to hear the Word. Think about that for a minute. He has to remind Christians to hear the Word. I take that to mean this isn't automatic for us. Maybe not always even easy for us. We're respectable enough not to outwardly deny the Word or hate the Word, but we can come to the place in our lives where in certain tender areas we will sit in judgment over the Word when we hear it. Or we'll find excuses. Why should I listen to the Word? Look at all the hypocrites in this place. They aren't listening to it. At least, at least we can have that initial reaction to the Word. And it's likely to be most true, especially in areas where our lives need correcting the most. Slow to speak means, Don, you can become terribly attached to your own way of thinking. Are you like that? You can become terribly attached to your own way of thinking. There's two viewpoints. Yours and mine, the correct one. And, and we all, we all like the feeling of our own thoughts and ideas and attitudes. We get used to evaluating our lives from inside our own heads, 
from our own perspective. Our desires, as, as we studied last week, they can drag our minds and our wills in bad directions even when we know better. Our minds almost instantly can arm themselves with arguments when we want to do so. And James is saying, hear what the Word says quietly. Hear it silently. Hear it reverently. Learn to suppress the carnal mind's expressions that contradict the voice of the Holy Spirit. God used a very graphic image, you know, even in the Old Testament to show just how important it was to have purified hearing when we came into his presence. And you get this picture in Exodus, you don't have to look it up, Exodus 29, 20, where he commands the priest upon slaying the animal for sacrifice. Have you ever noticed this? To take some of the blood of the sacrifice and place it on the tip of the priest's ear. That, that atoning blood. What a picture. It's symbolic. I know it's not magic. Take some of that and place it on the priest's ear. And the idea of that is we, we, we all stand in need of atoned hearing. Cleansed hearing. We are contaminated hearers. Without God's help... Without much prayer, in this business of hearing the word, we will frequently shoot ourselves in the foot. We will frame words, inward words, to protect our lives just the way they are. And this will keep us sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption. And so the idea that James is bringing to the table and that picture from from, uh, Exodus is such a good one. Anointed hearing is better than repeated forgiveness for the same sin. Anointed hearing is better than repeated forgiveness for the same sin. The third thing he says is, let every person be slow to anger. Slow to anger. Hear the word with patience. Hear the word with patience, especially when, and there are times, you know this is true, if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, where, where through the word the Spirit speaks and, and his word isn't always comforting. I'm, I'm suspicious of people, and every time the Holy Spirit speaks to them, it's this little gentle pat on the head. Sometimes. Sometimes. But there's, there's other times where, where I know the Holy Spirit speaks, and if I hadn't listened on a number of occasions, his word can be very crowding. Very in your face. Be slow to anger. Do you remember that great story of David and his sin with Bathsheba? 
Do you remember how David got a fresh lesson on hearing God from the way the prophet Nathan pointed out his sin? Nathan tells the story of David's sin. I won't go over it all again, but he puts David's sin temporarily into some fictitious character's life, and he makes David look at his own sin, but in somebody else. And that detachment, it's a brilliant move, that detachment gives David just enough time to really look at his own sin more objectively in someone else first. Sin always looks uglier in someone else, doesn't it? And so David has just enough time to really look at that sin before he needs to start protecting himself. In other words, Nathan diffused David's natural anger long enough to allow God's word to soak and do their work. And because David's anger was checked, and because he learned from that wonderful experience, he has this wonderful confession. It's as succinct as it is rare. I have, I have sinned against the Lord. When they really, really sin badly, when there's a lot of personal pride at stake, and especially when feelings have been wounded and hurt, Boy, it is not easy for people just to say, I have sinned against the Lord. It's a lesson David never forgot. Later on in the Psalms, he says this. He says, let the righteous reprove me, and it shall be as excellent oil. Three. The most common means of quenching the Holy Spirit while still going to church James 1.20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. We must have a hard time remembering this because it's repeated a number of times in the Scriptures. Let me just read Ephesians 4.30 and 31. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness... Wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. And, and isn't it interesting that when Paul talks about, James is talking about how, how the word can fail to do its life-giving work, and he stresses anger. Paul talks about how people grieve the Spirit of God. And when Paul talks about Christians grieving the Holy Spirit, the first thing he mentions is anger and and its fruit. Probably because when we're really upset about something, we almost always can justify it. Four. The Word of God won't automatically grow in every heart that hears it. 121. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I get magazines. I get oodles of religious magazines. And uh, something you'll notice toward the back of most magazines is there's advertisements and, 
every three or four months, there's someone with a new translation of the Scriptures, either a New Testament or the whole Bible. Just dozens and dozens and dozens. And the claim constantly is, finally, here's God's Word in a readable style that any idiot can understand. They don't use that word. But the idea is that it's just too hard. All the Bibles out there. How many Bibles do you have in your house? They're all just so hard. We, however, have one that is just easy, easy, easy to read. And every time I see one of those ads, I just... You know, it was okay for the first few, but after a while, I start to wonder to myself, are we Christians really that dumb? Can we not understand any of the present translations at all? Not one of them? And it, and it, just, it just begs the question, could there be another problem? Could there be something else blocking the life-giving fruitfulness of God's Word in our lives? Well, let's think. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word. James takes... You know how Google Earth works, and he just takes this big, high-elevation satellite photo of this problem of wickedness, and then he, he zooms in on a more detailed look at a particular kind of wickedness. Remember, he's talking to Christians. He's not writing to atheists. He's talking to Christians. And the kind of wickedness he seems concerned about, what's that mean? Rampant wickedness. Well, the word, the word literally means, if you looked it up, exceeding all bounds, widespread, unchecked. That's what rampant means. And James seems to me to be saying there's, there are types of wickedness this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And then there's a kind of a rampant wickedness, which is, which is a form of wickedness that, that it's not just that it's wrong, like a lot of other things, but it's, it's so widespread, it's so widespread that it actually starts to change the way right and wrong are measured. Do you understand what I'm trying to say in that? It's so, it is so a kind of wickedness that is so widely accepted that the strange thing is no longer that rampant wickedness. The strange thing is that anyone would dare to take a different view. Can you think of examples like that? I can. I can. And James is, James is cautioning that if you want... If you, want the truth of, if you want the truth of God's Word to... You were, you were birthed, brought to life by this Word. But if you want that to continue working in your heart... And I'm speaking now... I'm speaking a lot to people who are, who are 40 and under. Okay? 
If you want the truth of God's Word to continue to just ooze into your life in a life-giving, transforming, powerful way, it will now start to cost you more because there is rampant wickedness. And for you to adhere to what is revealed in this book is going to single you out in a way that it wouldn't have 25 years ago. James seems to be saying... The capacity for any church to continue showing light to the world is going to start hinging on what a new generation coming up does with widely accepted sins. And that if you cave on those, you will lose out in every, everything else as well. I mean, that's, that's tough thinking for a Sunday morning, isn't it? That's tough thinking for a Sunday morning. You pick the examples. You know all sorts of them. Rampant wickedness. Widespread. That's the kind of thing you need to be afraid of. It's the unchecked wickedness. The unopposed wickedness. The broadly accepted wickedness. And James is writing to Christians. And he says, you'll have to be particularly careful about this kind. This kind. Because you won't be able to receive the implanted word if you change your view on those things. This has nothing to do with political correctness. I understand politics. But what I'm talking about is, what what do you want to happen in your heart ongoingly when you open up God's word? That's what I'm talking about. Worldly minds will never be able to grasp spiritual truth. James says so. The soil has to be broken up. Weeding must be done. The heart must be prepared. With all due respect to my mother, I don't know if it's a spiritual axiom that cleanliness is next to godliness. But it is certainly true that cleanliness is before perception when it comes to hearing the word. Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments. A lot of stuff happens. They're there longer than people think. The Ten Commandments doesn't take that long to get. There's other things that happen there. And before the giving of the Ten Commandments... There's a little gesture that doesn't get talked about very often. Before God gives the Ten Commandments, God gives this revelation to all the people around the base of the mountain. They're about to hear from God. And you know what God tells them to do? All of them? Think of all this. All the people there. All of them have to wash all their clothes. Before God speaks... Everyone takes off everything they're wearing and they wash them. Cleanliness maybe isn't next to godliness, but it is preparation for hearing God speak. Boy, Pastor Don, this isn't very encouraging. Like, do I have to be perfect? You know, I'm sitting here this morning. I'd love to think that maybe God should speak to my heart, but 
Jesus was perfect, and I'm not, I'm close, but I'm not, I'm not perfect. And I have to be clean now, you're telling me. Well, surely the very purpose of hearing God's word is to have it convict and correct and purify. So no, you don't have to be perfect. But there is a kind of cleanness that I have to bring to the word right when I pick it up. I must, as we've been studying all along in this teaching, I must allow it to expose my faults. I must hear God sincerely, silently, without argument. I can't be bluffing spiritually, pretending I'm something that I'm not. I must be hungry to see and hear God at work. And so James says, before you pick up your Bible, put down something else. Putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And then James continues, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Which, what will it do, Pastor Don? How good is that? How good is that? My weak, little, shaky, fallen heart and all the tatters and snares that I bring. If I can remember just those things that James says about how I come to the Word and the kind of attitude I bring to it and that it matters as much day by day now as it was necessary for my salvation in the first place. And if I bring that hunger and cherish that Word and receive it into my heart, whatever weakness, failure, fault, smallness that I might bring to it, it is able to save Don Horban's soul. What do you have that can save your soul? Nothing. But this can. It can save your soul. Let's pray.